Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdy and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes, at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to welcome Trent Dalton to Books, Books, Books to talk about his second and latest book, All Our Shimmering Skies, published by HarperCollins. The last time I interviewed Trent was in 2018 at the Byron Writers' Festival about his debut novel, which had just come out, no one had heard of it, and had a very odd title. That book, Boy Swallows Universe, went on to become the fastest selling debut novel ever in Australia. Let me tell you a little bit more about Trent and about Boy Swallows Universe before we start to talk about this wonderful second book of his. So Trent Dalton is a staff writer for the Weekend Australian magazine. He's won many awards for his journalism, including two Walkley Awards for Excellence in Journalism. Boy Swallows Universe has sold more than 500,000 copies, and that's just in Australia. It's sold many, many more copies overseas, and it is soon to be made into a film and also a play with the Queensland Theatre Company. It's won many major Australian literary prizes, far too many to mention, but including 2019 Indie Book of the Year, the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Best New Writer and People's Choice, and a record-breaking four Australian book industry awards, including Book of the Year. Trent, congratulations, and it's wonderful to have you here on the show. Nicole, it's an honour. Trent, tell us in a few sentences, what's your second book, All Our Shimmering Skies, about? It's the story of a motherless 12-year-old girl named Molly Hook. She lives in Darwin in World War II, um, just prior to the bombing of Darwin, February 1942, the day that I consider pretty much the most dramatic day in modern Australian history. And this girl's life is so tough, Nicole, that she's come to believe she's cursed. And, uh, and in order to remove her curse, that she's even starting to believe that uh, she might be the cause of those bombs that are dropping over Darwin. And, and as those bombs fall, she decides to make her a great escape. And she goes on a incredible odyssey into that deep country northern territory that we all know and love so well and sort of part of our australian dna and um and she's in search of the man that she believes for better or worse um might be able to remove this thing that she believes is a curse from her family and from herself and she might be able to change her fate trent thank you could you start now by just reading a short extract for us too this is, um, I, I've, I haven't read this bit aloud and, and it's one of my favourite, it might be my favourite passage in the book, Nicole. I, um, I've never sort of done a public reading of this, so, um, but it, it finds our hero Molly Hook um, just prior to setting off on her quest and she worships this woman named Greta Mays and Greta is sort of this, this actress who was on her way to Hollywood but somehow found her way stuck in Darwin in the 1940s with the wrong man and um, her dreams are sort of slowly slipping by. But, um, but every now and then Greta indulges in some Shakespeare on the back of her fella Aubrey's um, truck. And, uh, and she's just finished 
a remarkable Lady Macbeth um, little segment and uh, and her her biggest fan Molly Hook is in awe and uh, and. And, and I'll just, I'll just read it. And here's a little conversation that they have. How does an actress just cry any time she wants to? That doesn't happen just any time I want it to happen, Greta says. I've got to build up to it. I've got to earn it. I've got to bleed for it, Molly Hook. Greta points a finger to her temple. I'm saying those lines up here, she says. And she places a hand on her chest. But I'm feeling those lines in here. And all the time I'm feeling those lines, I'm also feeling... Things I've felt before in my life. See, that's what you've got to do to be true, Molly. You've got to go down deep inside your heart and soul and you've got to find that dark and scary and fragile place you've been to before. You know what I mean? We all have a place like that. Molly smiles. I wish I could do what you can do. And Greta shifts the way she's sitting, slides her back, backside along the tray, leans over the tray edge, taking another puff on a smoke. Close your eyes, she says. Molly closes her eyes. Now keep those peepers shut and go to your place, Molly, Greta says. What if I don't like my place, Molly asks. Why would anyone want to go to the place that makes them sad? Because sadness is the truest emotion, Greta says. Happiness, it isn't to be trusted. It's a bald-faced liar. But the truth of your sadness enriches every other thing inside you, especially your joy. You shouldn't be afraid to go to the place that makes you sad, Molly Hook. The more you go to that dark place inside you, the lighter it gets. You go there enough times, you realize that dark place is actually your sacred place. That place is all of you and the tears you take from that place are just the darkness leaking out. Precious drop by precious drop. You following me? No, Molly says. I'll leave it there. But uh, I mean, that's the heart of the book right there. You know, go to your, go to your sacred place and... Um, and realize that it's actually, it's actually your, um, the darkest place is actually the most special place inside you. Ben, I love that you started with that and to the, the reference to Greta reading on the back of the truck and, and declaiming as Lady Macbeth, I think, isn't she? Out, out mm. there spot. Mm. I read somewhere that you said as you wrote this book, you had a volume of Shakespeare by your side and there are various references it, to Macbeth, to Hamlet and also to The Tempest. And you said yeah. that The Tempest had been one of the um, plays that particularly influenced you. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Uh, the Tempest is so wonderfully filled with magic and revenge, and the, and and in um, in the case of Aubrey Hook, the real villain of that story, he's a man sustained by his rage and hate. And Shakespeare knew those people as well, and um, I kind of knew them. To be honest with you, Nicole, I knew them in the 1980s in in Housing Commission Brisbane. You know what I mean? And I kind of knew them, and I have known them and interviewed them for 20 years as a journalist, as Australian men. And I'm fascinated with these people who, who love something so much at, at, some, at one point and then can so quickly transfer to hate. And, and, oh, I mean, don't even get me started on the links between love and hate and how quickly mm. men can get to the hate phase of their lives and the relationship to what is a epidemic of violence across Australia that I've written countless journalistic articles about. You know, we, we see one in four women dying every every week in Australia to domestic violence and and uh, and there's a big theme of that through my book I'm, you know not I'm not talking too loudly about it in the book but it's there and 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 it was there in Boyce Wallace universe as well and and it was the fundamentals of that about how love can turn to hate was something Shakespeare knew so well and 
And he threaded that through a lot of his pieces. So often the villains in his stories always started off with love and, and then they turned to hate and vengeance and all the darkness. Well, that's exactly what Aubrey Hook's doing in the book. And he's, um, he's a man who's sustained by his own hate. And, and what, if, what if hate is so strong inside a man that um, it can even sustain him through almost through death? And, and, and it was reading things like The Tempest that, um, and even like, you know, in lesser extent, A Midsummer Night's Dream, that are these sort of dreamlike Shakespeare plays that you just, you know, carried me away even when I was a teenager, but also more recently definitely did have. And it was my wife's copy of, um, it's this big, thick blue doorstop. And you probably know the, the version, like it's just hardback, incredible. You could murder someone with this book. And uh, and I just flipped, it, it was so remarkable, Nicole, Every, and I, I didn't intend to fill it with all that Shakespeare, but that man, you know, it's been said before, he's pretty great. He's a pretty good writer, but every single human emotion I put inside, every dynamic between the humans, between the characters, the main four or five characters in that, I could flip open and find almost by chance something that Shakespeare was saying that directly related to that chapter in my book and it was remarkable like how often that happened. Trent I have to ask you about the setting of the book. So mm. it opens in Darwin and in the early stages it's set against the background of you say of the Japanese bombing of Darwin in February 1942 during World War II. Why did you choose that time and that place and perhaps you could tell our listeners I gather that you have a particular connection to the Northern Territory that you've been spending time a lot of time there over the last 20 years. So talk a little bit about your connection to that place and why you chose that time mm. and that place as the setting. Mm. Are you okay with a really long answer? Like, is that is this going to really bore your listeners? So ap- no, apologies in advance, listeners, but um, it goes pretty deep and it goes back pretty far. But as Boy Swallows Universe was really growing legs, Nicole, I got a bit freaked out, to be honest. Like my my emotional state was all over the place because I, I'm this journo by day and you start to... F- well, and also I drew from my past, you know, and I'm, I'm wrestling to this day about the merits of doing that, you know, and, and I constantly ask my brothers, hey, you know, fellas, you, you're, you know, you're okay with this thing I've done and how am I managing it? Or am, I, am I speaking about it in the right way? And that, that's, that's fraud. And those boys didn't ask for this to happen. You know, they didn't ask for it to have their youngest brother. I've got three older brothers, Joel, Ben, Jesse, and I'm, you know, Trent, I'm the youngest and, uh, and you know, they're just these beautiful guys who are leading their own lives and they don't need to have every person at every cafe they go to say, Hey, are you, um, did you inspire August Bell in that book? Or are you, are you Eli Bell or where, where do you fit in that story? And I'm always sort of saying that to them, like, Hey, are you cool with that? But one person, and I'm saying that to my mom as well, always like, Hey, am I talking about this in the right way? Or am I, am I paying true? I wrote that book, Nicole, to pay tribute to my mom and to tell the world why she's my bloody hero and why I think she's a warrior and um, she's a survived things that others would have easily succumbed to. And, and, but I'm, even as I talk about it, even as I talk about it now, I have to be conscious that I'm talking about that in the right way and paying tribute to her. So I'm always checking in with her and like, going, you know, just tell me to pull my head in if I've said something insulting or whatever. And so it's, it's dangerous ground. Right. And so for two years I've been having these type of thoughts and, uh, there's one man who I never got to talk to about, and that was my father, my my dad, Noel, Noel who, um, you know, he's kind of essentially Robert Bell in, um, he's the sort of father figure in the book that the boys really meet in the second half of that book. And and I never got to ask my old man what he felt of that book. And Nicole, this man lived for reading. I mean, he woke up every day. He slept on a high jump mattress that he got doing community service at a nearby school where I grew up. And, um, 
and uh, he'd roll 20 cigarettes of drum rolling tobacco and he'd lay them out on his bed and spend the rest of that day smoking and reading Robert Ludlum and Tolkien or you name it, you know, every book as long as it was thick and maybe involved a cowboy or maybe involved a spy. um, But that man, you know, who lived for reading, like reading sustained that man, Nicole, it was his escape and that beautiful guy who taught me so much and taught me how to read books and taught me how to write, essentially. You know, he's the reason I'm talking to you. And uh, that man never got to read his youngest son's book, you know, and that crushes me. It really kills me even to talk about it now. And and uh, he never got to see his son's books in Dimmicks in the city or somewhere and see it up on the shelf with those heroes of his. And that kills me. And so the two years after Boy Swallows Universe was doing his thing, I just by chance, I through my day job as a writer um, for Weekend Australian Magazine, I I got sent to the Flinders Ranges in South Australia to do a story. Then a couple of months after that, I got sent to Uluru. I was sleeping under a swag under the stars at Uluru. That's just by chance. And that was inspiring, very inspiring, as you can imagine. And I got sent to a place called Groot Island, um, you know, incredibly wild and enchanting island on the edge of Arnhem Land up in the NT. And a couple of months, no, weeks after that, I went to Litchfield National Park and um, all along the Litchfield National Park is about an hour and a half south of Darwin. And it is for me the greatest secret of the natural landscape in Australia. But all along the way, right, all along the way, as I'm finishing these stories, Nicole, I'm I'm finishing my day, my afternoon, right, 5, 6 p.m. I go back to my little motel accommodation, whatever has been sorted out for me. And I'd have a beer and I'd just be thinking about and processing what's going on back at home with this Boy Swallows Universe thing, right? And it's really growing and it was being turned into Hebrew and Russian and there was kids writing to me, Nicole, from Korea saying, thank Mm. you for this kid, Eli Bell, because he's shown me that I'm going to one day escape my own situation and deep, deep stuff, really deep emotional stuff. And and I I just find myself at sunset looking up to the sky now, this is where it gets a bit deep and so apologies, but it's um, I just say really important things to the sky, knowing that I'm not talking to anyone but my old man. And, and I'm just sort of saying stuff to him in my head, like, hey, dad, can you, can you see this? Can you believe what happened? I went and wrote about our 1980s and, and I think you'd be proud. I hope you are. I'm so sorry if there were parts of the book that pissed you off or I'm so sorry if there were parts that I didn't get right or whatever or that were too fanciful or I took it too far. But I hope you're proud, Dad. You know, I hope you can see it. And Oh, man, it like, gets me emotionally. I've spoken about this notion before, but it's every time I, it's just really beautiful. And it's sort of, I don't know, when we're talking, it's like afternoon. It's around this sort of time, you know, and, and uh, but it felt good, Nicole. It felt really good to have those chats. Even though the sky is not saying anything back to me, it's not saying a single thing back. I don't need it to because it just felt good, the doing of it, the saying of things. And it felt warm. And I'm not a spiritual guy, but I believe in story and I believe in the sky. You know, I think I believe in the sky. And, um, and I started to think about all the little private conversations we all have with the sky and I, and, and the sky is always there for us in grief and the sky is there for us in need and our desperate hours. We turn to it probably even sometimes before the ones we love most. And I think it's because it's such a great listener and, and I just thought, well, okay, what if this kid Molly Hook, she's so hard up for friends, she's so hard up for love. What if she puts all her friendship and love in that beautiful blue thing up there? And, um, and, and then what if that sky um, 
appreciated her friendship so much and her loyalty that it, it in return dropped four gifts that would fall from the sky for her for, along her quest. The first gift is a map and the second gift is a friend and the third gift is a miracle and the fourth gift, that's the end, the end of the story. And, um, and all I had to start off was the second gift, the friend. So who's the friend that's going to fall from the sky? Well, there's a story that I always wanted to write about as a journo and that's the story of a Japanese fighter pilot named Sergeant Hajime Toyashima, this is real world stuff, this is real life, who in the bombing, first bombing raid of Darwin got shot down by the Aussie diggers and uh, crash landed on Melville Island, and, um, and, which is a wondrous, wild Australian place. And uh, he wandered, he hit his head on the flight controls, he wrapped his head in a bandage, he had nothing but a pistol in his right hand, and he proceeded to wander aimlessly through that Australian wilderness by chance, he comes across 10 First Nations people and one of whom, an incredible man named Matthias Ulangara, um, creeps up behind Hajimi and takes him as a prisoner of war. And, uh, and, and Matthias becomes the first Australian to capture a Japanese soldier on Australian soil by holding a tomahawk up to his head. And, uh, and that just always just blew me away. Like, that's an amazing story. And I just thought, well, there's the second gift. And and, so can okay. I can I just ask you, Trent? Is is that yeah. really the reason why you set it at that time, at the time of yeah. the Japanese bombing? Because you wanted to incorporate that character in the story. Com- completely. That scenario was too surreal. I wanted to write a book that was gothic and graphic, but also as wondrous as Dorothy walking into Oz. You know, from black and white turning into Technicolor, and the vision of this man in my head, my version of Hajimi, which is Yukio Miki, a Japanese fighter pilot, literally falling from the sky, um, was too irresistible a kind of interaction for me not to have. So what, what happens if, if Greta and Molly run into this incredible man along the way? That's how So I'm going to stop you at that point, Trent. Let's go back a step and let's talk a little bit about Molly yeah. and fill our listeners in on Molly's yeah, background. Yeah, great, great. So I gather that Molly was inspired by your two daughters, that one of them said to you something to the effect of you've written this great book about a fantastic young guy, but how about writing a book about some fantastic young women? So my understanding is that that was sort of the first inspiration for you to write about Molly Hook. And you've said that there's a lot of both of your daughters in Molly Hook. Before we talk about Molly's traumatic childhood, which clearly doesn't relate to your kids, can you tell us a little bit about what features of your daughters have worked their way into Molly's character? Oh, what a beautiful question. I mean, um, yeah, that's so true. My daughter came home one day and her teacher had been telling her about reading Boy Swallows Universe. And suddenly she came back and said, Dad, tell me more about this Boy Swallows Universe. And I'd told them, I'd prepped them, but they're a bit too young. They're 11 and 13, right? And this was my 11-year-old. She's too young to read Boy Swallows Universe just yet. I reckon she could probably read it at about 14, but... um, which my niece did very early, my beautiful niece Mara, who read it very early, and she said, "Hey, Trent, this is this is all right, and this is okay for fourteen-year-olds, but uh, it's got a few C bombs in there that I might need to remove, though." But uh, but um, what happened after that? She challenged me. You know, she absolutely challenged me. She said, "Dad, you wrote this book about two beautiful boys, Eli and Gus Bell, but Dad, you're a father of two girls, and uh, you know, why don't you write a book about two beautiful girls?" And I'm like, "Dan, that is a really good challenge, and that's a fair enough point because." what am I here for Nicole, if not to inspire those two individuals? Like seriously, like that is all 
I sort of really am here to do. You know, it's not really to indulge my little writing fantasies and stuff. It's to be a good dad for them and to kind of inspire them, help them get to the end of their story. And so I really wanted to write a story with a fantastic, powerful, wondrous um, adolescent who's 12, you know, no coincidence, she's 12 smack bang between the 11 and 13 of my daughters and just say, hey, this, this girl is my eldest daughter's, has my eldest daughter's uh, peace and private wonder and um, uh, depth. And she has my youngest daughter's bravery, heart, um, flamboyance, um, toughness, ability to pull through about five broken bones that this youngest daughter of mine has had. And so Molly is both of those girls and I'm, and, and so then when you go downstairs in your little writing bunker um, to then put that girl through the perils that I put her through, it makes me so emotionally invested in that story because it's kind of my daughters that I'm holding in my hands and putting through hell. And then that's kind of weird. I know, but. Um, so let's one talk a little bit about that hell. When we first meet Molly, she's seven, and we see her in a very emotional scene with her mother, Violet. And Violet tells her something. They have a significant conversation. Violet tells her something, and Molly receives her first gift from the sky. So could you tell us a little bit about that scene? And then I'd like to move on to talk a little bit more about Molly's childhood generally, and particularly her relationship with her father and her uncle. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, Molly's mum, Violet, is trying to prepare her. Molly's mum's about to go away and, and we can hopefully infer that she can't take it anymore. I don't think she's ready to take this anymore. But before she goes, she needs to make sure this girl's ready for what's about to confront her. This, this world that she has inherited. And, and if anything the book's about, it's a book about legacy and, and inheritance. And I mean the curses we inherit as well as the blood, as well as... Um, stories the stories we inherit and and she keeps saying what is your heart what is this place what are you and the response kind of almost rehearsed that she's encouraged her daughter to come back with is my heart is rock this place is hard this place is rock but my heart is rock as well and and it and my heart is rock and it can't be broken and so her mom essentially is telling her embrace your strength and embrace the power within you because you'll need it. You'll need every bit of it through the next 20 years of your life, essentially. And, uh, and that's a powerful thing for Molly to hear at the age of seven. And, uh, and she will certainly need that by the time she's 12 and she's being raised by dark men such as her uncle Aubrey Hook and, and sometimes occasionally weak men such as her father, Horace. And, uh, and, and it's these two men that are kind of guiding her way, which is sort of partly the reason why she has to run as well. And, and what uh, are they like, Trent? How do they treat her? Well, terribly. They're, they are men who have, have succumbed to hate, uh, you know, and they, they've, they've lost. They are men. Well, in, in truth, they're men inspired by the Australian men I've seen in sort of my life. Again, you know, people I've interviewed, you know, for 20 years who as well, um, who I've seen succumb to hate. And, and we see it every day where we see people transfer from that, that loving notion, um, loving something so strongly that it sort of turns to hate somehow. And, uh, and they're kind of ruined by that. They're men ruined, they're drunks and they're kind of, they're, they're abusive and, 
they're horrendous. Yeah, the start of that book is so tough. It's so hard. And, and uh, you know, the girl, I'm just willing her throughout that whole book and hopefully the reader is too, that she will find the light and, uh, you know, to, to escape from that darkness. And let's just set the scene a little bit. What they do, the family business, is running a graveyard. So she's referred to as the grave digger's daughter. A question that I had, and you may have just answered it in part, is that we're not going to go into detail to talk about Horace and Aubrey right now. Mm. Suffice to say that we see very quickly that both of them, particularly Aubrey, are very cruel and very sadistic. Mm. And Mm. we get a little bit of insight into why that might be. Again, we won't talk about that. But my question to you was, was, sorry, there's one other thing that I did want to draw attention to. What do they do that is, to me, was all, well, not the most repulsive because there's so much that's repulsive, but they do something to the graves that they're in charge of. What do they do? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something I don't even talk about. I mean, it's, I'm fascinated with this. They are, they are literally grave diggers, that, but they're also grave robbers. I mean, yeah. they, they, and they make Molly, they instruct Molly, this is her life. It's digging up the dead and, and taking the jewellery literally off their fingers and the sacred objects. And for Molly, this is the greatest sin because she worships the dead people that are beneath those graves. And she worships, her religion is the words that are on the epitaphs of all of those graves. And that's a very inspiring thing. I mean, that's straight from me. I live in Brisbane and there's a famous cemetery here called Tawong Cemetery. And I've walked you know, I would take lunches off from my day job at work and, and go have a sandwich up at Tawong Cemetery and just go deep and walk through and just look at the gravestones and, and read those stories. And uh, and I know there was another great Australian writer who did just the same, Geraldine Brooks, who inspired, no end inspires me. I love her book, especially Year of Wonders. I don't know if you've read that, Nicole. I yeah, love it too. Right, it's so beautiful. And, a little uh, close to home at the moment right now, Trent. Oh, you know, isn't it, you know, and I, and Hey, by the way, I'm feeling everything you're going through and, um, and everyone down there, you know, and, um, and absolutely it's so close to home and and it's sort of a poignant thing. It's actually a very poignant book to read right now. And it'd be very hard to read that book now, but it's a story of a woman who's essentially in a plague village in Europe. And she's, she's basically finding life in so much darkness and knowing that everyone around her is about to die. And, uh, and it's incredibly powerful, but Geraldine wrote that with kind of a, a sentence in her head that inspired her. And that was, don't be afraid to see dead people. And, and, uh, and I thought I found that very, very inspiring in terms of don't be afraid to see the ones you've lost. Don't be afraid to see the stories and make these people come alive again in your head. And, and that's essentially what Molly Hook does. You know, she's walking around, she has no people to love in this book, so maybe she can she can love and find out and discover life through these epitaphs. And um, you know, one of the greatest crimes she's watching, and she's having to to partake in because of her father and her uncle is the digging up of these these mm. bodies and and the desecration and, of the graves. The desecration of these graves, and and it's the desecration not only of the the humans that are beneath them, and 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 but it's the desecration of their story as well, and uh, and. And I love that one thing she has to do before she sets off. She has to right some wrongs. And, and, uh, and it's really beautiful that she does that and she respects the dead because she sees them as, as sort of real living people in her mind. Trent, I want to ask you about something that you've said and you touched on it a little bit earlier in our discussion. You said, we haven't talked about all the terrible things that Molly has had to do or that has happened to her, but suffice to say, it's a very, very traumatic, troubled childhood. Mm. And you've said... 
I really hate putting Molly through those things, but I do it because I do feel there's a power in going as dark as you can because it makes the light shine that much brighter. What did you mean by that? If I can draw from, you know, a bit of a hero of mine, Hemingway said it better than me, but, you know, and he said it first, the sun also rises. And, and there's a quote in that book, it, and it says, the world breaks all of us eventually, and those it does not break, it kills. And I just tell you, I tell you, Nicole, that's the story of my year. You know what I mean? Like that is the story of my year and a half and story, including the three months that I just wrote in a fever dream, all our shimmering skies. What I mean by that, by drawing on that sentence is everyone kept asking me and saying, Hey, you must be so brave to write um, what you did in voice while universe or to access those little rooms in your mind that you had to access to kind of create some of those scenes, which make no mistake, we're very real. And, and some of the more violent aspects of that book will come from very raw and real places that, that my that 12 year old Trent, who is still an existing person in my body and soul, who I kind of love a lot. And he's kind of a, he's a beautiful kid, that kid. And he's better than the 41 year old bloke that is now sitting before you complex and having all these thoughts in his head or, you know, so like, I love that kid so much, but what I'm trying to say, and I'm what I say to people now is that I realize is that I wasn't being brave. I was weak and, and I was writing from a very vulnerable and compromised and raw place. And, and, and to write with truth, sometimes you have to be weak. And, um, and in Australia, we're so, we're so hooked. Um, we're so, uh, fixated with being strong and brave and tough. And, you know, God, I mean, our whole sort of kind of, you know, mythology is built around that strength, this sort of finding this inner strength, but we forget that sometimes it's okay to be weak. And that's what Hemingway was saying, saying it's okay to yield to the darkness, you know, don't, don't be afraid to break. And uh, because the alternative is being stout and strong and getting killed. You know what I mean? Like, like that's what he's saying. Those who, who don't yield, it will kill. If you, if you try and, you know, if you don't find a way to access the weaker sides of yourself and embrace them as part of yourself just as much as your strong parts. And, and you know, of course, Hemingway does have a caveat on that. You know, it's kind of we must try to be strong at the broken places and some can be strong at the broken places. And, of course, not everyone can do that. And, I, you know, I, which is why I have such a soft spot for drunks and such a soft spot for drug addicts. And I would never, ever say a word about anyone who succumbed fully to the darkness, you know, and, uh, and I know I'm talking a bit deep now, but it's like, but it's really true. It's really important. And, um, so I have to write about those dark places because for one, Nicole too, they're just, for me, not to would be just lying. Like I can't not sort of see things that I might've seen or even things I've written about as a journalist. And you walk around any, for any length of time in the Australian suburbs, make no mistake, there is darkness in those places. Mm. But We're going to come to talk a little bit later, Trent, about yeah, this idea of good and evil and how it's oh, cool. both yeah, of Yeah, great. Yeah. Let's just talk a little bit more about Molly. So Molly believes that the reason that her life is so tough is because there's a curse on her family. Why does she believe that and what is the curse? Well, she's she's built up that knowledge based on the lies of um largely white men around her and and there's talk in a town just as just as we see in in australian cultures we um we have a way of misinterpreting the 60,000 year indigenous culture that is at the heart of our nation and 
and in the town in that she's grown up in in this graveyard sort of area all the townsfolk keep talking about this man that has grown in only in myth in storytelling named Longcoat Bob and and her grandfather Tom Berry um he he committed a sin and uh, he did something wrong in the past and 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 it literally has been written on his gravestone I am the result of a curse that was placed upon me now as much as anything else, she needs to go into that wilderness to find the truth of that. And, but for now, she, she considers that a curse. Okay, well, here's, here's the thing about me, right? I've got things inside me that, uh, for example, you know, I could easily just like that sort of go down the road of loving booze just as much as every other person who succumbed to it as much as anyone else, right? So that's, that's my little weakness. So okay, that's sort of in my blood. I think that got passed down to me, Nicole, right? So, so one way of looking at it is, is genetics, but you know, another more whimsical way to look at that is a curse. And um, I'm, I'm quite taken by these curses that we take on, that these things that we take on and that we inherit that could be seen as curses. But if I have to talk about that, then I have to talk about all the blessings as well that, that are in my blood as well, which is kindness and hopefully sort of a sense of humor and all those other wonderful things. So I'm really taken with, and so is Molly with the things that have been handed down to her. And, but if you see enough darkness in your family, like Molly Hook does, it would be easy to think and enough tragedy, right? It would be so easy to think that your family has indeed been cursed by a so-called mythical, mystical type sorcerer that the townsfolk are labeling Longcoat Bob with, who is this essentially an indigenous elder who's an incredibly intelligent bright human being that no one really knows anything about and but they're just forming stories up around around that man and so but still she needs to find this guy so she's off to see the wizard the wizard of oz you know and that's her quest isn't it her (laughs) quest is to go to find him and to to get she believes that he's put a a curse on her family and the quest is to go to find him to ask him to lift that curse again this is something you touched on a bit earlier um trend i was really pleased i shouldn't say surprised to hear you talking about Homer because one of the things that I was wondering about is, of course, there have been many, many epic quests in literature going right back to the Odyssey and no doubt before that. And I wondered if any of those stories, if any of that literature had inspired you with this story. Oh, Nicole, it's every part of me as a boy, as I was escaping some of that stuff as a kid, you know, whatever that was in the 1980s in Housing Commission, Brackenridge, Brisbane, you know, my brothers and I, we're just we're running to that, those books. I mean, I don't even talk about it in Boy Swallows Universe, but all that, all that drug dealing kind of world, all the Dalton boys were doing, we were, we were pretending to be Odysseus with cardboard mm. swords and cardboard shields, you know, out, out in the backyard. And, and, uh, and, you know, we're just playing swords and we're playing and Clash of the Titans and uh, Conan the Barbarian and, uh, and Tolkien and the Fellowship of the Ring. And, and, and we're, we're literally playing games where like, we were quite literate at like sort of eight years of age and we're going, don't look into the eyes of Medusa. She'll turn you to stone. Like that is us, Nicole. Like we were doing that. And so that type of storytelling was absolutely in my DNA. And, and, and I'm paying tribute to that. I mean, you will notice it throughout that book. There's a, you know, if, you know, anyone with, you know, who's vaguely knows some of those stories, will see a Cyclops and they'll see, you'll see people succumbing to sort of a sense of a siren song and, and people, um, Lotus Eaters and, you know, all sorts of people. I'm take, I'm so, and, and it's just a metaphor. It's totally in a, a metaphor for me analyzing why people in my life might have wanted to, 
to go away from home as well. And I mean, home in the metaphorical sense, like, why do you want to take heroin? Well, you want to get away from your story. You want to, you want to go away from home. You want to take a break from home. And I mean, home being the, the symbolic thing that's inside you and yourself, you want to get away from yourself. And, and Molly is tempted to get away from herself and her past as well in, in this very story. She takes with her, when she sets out on her journey, um, a duffel bag. As you say, it's got a copy of Shakespeare in it. It's got some tins of food. It's also got a red heart-shaped stone. Could you tell us about that, Trent? Uh, well, that, that is a symbol of the, yeah, she carries, literally she's, she's come to believe that her mum, her mum's, she's carrying around her mum's heart that has been cursed and that it has turned to stone. And, and, and it's just, you know, okay, well, like, okay, well, the, the metaphor for that is the rocks we all carry, right? I mean, the, I, I carried rocks for so long, Nicole, and I, I shoved them down to the pit of my stomach and I sort of kind of didn't ever dig them up for about 20 years. And, and there were moments in my life where I sort of told lies to, to avoid digging up my own rocks or sort of not showing the world my rocks that I carried around, you know? And, uh, and I mean, I became a journalist at 20 and never spoke about at all where I sort of came from and, and never, t- I was a writer who was meant to write stories and I never told the greatest story, you know, a really cool story that, yeah, my mum fell in love with this kind of drug dealer and we found a secret room under that guy's house. And inside that room was this really strange rotary dial red telephone that I never ever found out where it came from. Right. And, um, because we, we do sometimes bury our rocks, we bury them. And, uh, and at 38 years of age and I'm 41 now. And, uh, but at 38, for whatever reason, I just decided to just dig up to just get those rocks out and just show the world, show them to the world. And, and, you know, the funny thing, the minute I started doing that is when, um, all these other Australians and, Russians and Koreans started showing me their rocks as well. And, and you realize we don't, you know, well, it's a quarry, it's a quarry. And, and it's just, we, we, we have this thing called literature and storytelling where we, we just throw all our rocks in the quarry and we can sort of get by in that quarry together. And I thought that was really powerful. And yeah, so she's carrying around this, this rock, literally just going, what the hell happened to my mom's heart? And, and she almost wants to show it to long coat Bob, I suspect. But and she's like, also worried herself that her own heart's going to turn to stone. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely, isn't she? Yeah, that's so insightful. That's so true. Yeah, she's terrified. Exactly, exactly. And, and it, oh, well, the, the, the great metaphor of that too. I, it's so cool, Nicole, that you dig so beautifully into the text because I'm so kind of love where that text goes because you're so right. What I'm saying there is that you can't, let your heart get hard. You could, yeah, she finds herself toughening up. Okay, so her mum said, what is your heart? It is rock. But she needs to get closer to the place that I'm talking about. I'm, like it's me analysing all that stuff in myself, wanting her to get to the point where she realises it's okay to be weak and soft and tender. And I know this world is hard as hell, but you can still maintain your magic and wonder. And I love those Australian kids on a daily basis who are living such tough lives in the cold. They're out there right now in the thick of it and living, living such hard lives, but they're maintaining their magic and the world kind of can't knock their magic out of them. And, and each one of us 
all and and hopefully we don't lose it in our youth you know but we have a pilot light we have this little light inside us that the world can sometimes put out and but you know you just got to hope that it just stays alight in those years that you know a kid's doing it tough and that's what molly's sort of you know she's at risk of her heart heart actually becoming stone and uh and you know in in a metaphorical way but in in her sense in a completely kind of literal way yeah Trent, let's just go back to the opening scene between Molly and her mother. Um, they have some significant conversations, but the first gift falls from the sky, as it were, in that scene. Could you tell us what that gift is and what what its significance is for Molly's quest? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a copper pan, and it's her grandfather's gold fossicking pan. But on the back is is a map you know, and, and it's, and it's the greatest thing any kid could find, you know, it's the greatest gift, any kid, any Australian kid, particularly in 1942 at the, you know, in the thick of world war two, it could be the greatest thing a kid could ever receive. And it's a map to essentially hidden treasure. It's a map to treasure and what that treasure is, she will have to find out for herself, but uh, it's filled with riddles and uh, all etched along that map. And, you know, again, that's just me indulging in my greatest fantasies as a writer to go, wouldn't it be amazing to write a novel that had riddles and, and obstacles and challenges? And, uh, and she has to solve these four riddles essentially to continue on her quest, like classic storytelling. So I'm, I'm what, whilst I'm putting all this dark stuff that I'm talking about and all Trent Dalton's baggage and all that, it's still, you know, I just can't wait for some 14-year-old Aussie kid to read that book and go, man, have you read that book? Like, it's filled with riddles and you got to answer, the, you know, you got to find out almost. You can try and predict what it is. And, like, that's just the stuff I lived for as a kid, you know. And uh, so I put that all in there. And But it's also, you know, the, the actual riddles themselves uh, are ap- absolutely life lessons as well. I mean, the fourth riddle, which is carry all you own, own all you carry, step inside your heart of stone. And it's sort of kind of, well, that's the whole book. I mean, that's the, that's the meaning of the book. It's, it's, we must own the things we have done and we must own our mistakes and we must own our faults. And, but also as we're doing that, we must own our blessings as well. And, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's the story of Australia, right? I mean, we have, you know, you know, not to get too deep again or political or anything, but it's like, you know, we are starting to now own our mistakes as a nation. And I'm so proud of us to be able to do that in the right way. And, and it's going to help us move ahead with, you know, some of the things that we got wrong and, and let it, let us, you know, be better in the future as we walk ahead. And, but you know, that applies to how you should be in a marriage that applies to friendships that applies to your own story. And, and, you know, the minute I owned my story, which was Boys Follows Universe was the minute really lovely things started happening to me. So it's no surprise that I just fed that whole book with that theme and that that's the last riddle of, um, of Molly's kind of quest. And that's also connected to Molly's love of poetry, which we hear mm. about. Mm. And we find mm. her mother in that opening scene mm. says to her, please, you know, read my poetry books. And we find <laughs> out that Molly really devours these books of poetry yeah. by Whitman, by Dickinson, by Poe. Mm. And I thought it's very lovely the way you've done that, that there's a connection through the three generations from Molly up to her mother who loved poetry to her mother's father, Tom Berry, who loved poetry. And, of course, we find that it's Tom Berry who's written those riddles on the pan. Oh. And part of the part of the riddle is also part of the poetry, that, that, that it's a direct line of communication, I guess, as it were, from Molly to her grandfather who she never met. 
I love that, that Tom Berry got succumbed to greed. He, got, he fell for the lust of gold, right? Literally, as men did back then. I mean, that happened. That, I mean, you know, I went up there and re- you could research that till the cows come home about men falling for the lust of gold. It was, it was a thing, hence the gold rush and, and people rushing to these places across Australia where gold was found. And, and that guy, as he ran to the color of gold, he, he ran from the thing he was brilliant at words and poetry. And, and I, I find that really interesting that we don't realize the gold we have inside us that, 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 you know, forgetting that you have something just as simple as poetry. That is for me, like far out, man, you could give me a cave filled with gold and I would take the complete works of Shakespeare in the next cave any day of the week, you know? And, and I think that's very sort of powerful to remember you know there are things that will outlast gold and and storytelling will you know and uh, so it's sort of this really beautiful sort of yeah kind of theme that's through that book and and you know but I mean that's that's something that Dickinson knew and Walt Whitman knew that you know you don't need anything but that blank page in life and that's so cool you know Dickinson she doesn't need men she just needs a blank page you know and I find her very inspiring and so does Molly and no wonder Molly's mum that did as well and and yeah and so I mean Walt Whitman in particular has been blowing my mind in the past two years, been really, really great in terms of... Why is that, Trent? What is it about his poetry that moves you It so just much? has found me at the right time, maybe maybe, probably dealing with like, you know, I mean, my old man only, you know, he passed away like sort of six years ago. It was quite some time ago, but like it was sort of, it's heavy for me because I miss him so much. And Whitman writes about the cycle of life so beautifully i mean if there's a theme of some of that stuff that yukio is talking about in there about the lost are not lost that's all whitman telling me that you know and and uh and i found that really heartening you know to read those poems and sort of go oh that's beautiful that's a nice thought um leaves of grass his whitman's great epic is is just all about the fact like find me under my boot soles find me find me in the grass in the dirt and 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 i will always be there okay find me, you know, in my version of that, find me in the sky. I mean, my old man, we, my brothers and I scattered his ashes in the Palmerston Passage and it was beautiful in the cold. Palmerston Passage in Bribey Island, this place one hour north of Brisbane. And I haven't really spoken about this, but it's like, it, it's beautiful to think about that. Like I'll find him in the sea, you know, and, and, and Palmerston Passage is just this beautiful little passage of, of water um, that dad used to mud crab, he used to fish for mud crabs in, you know, and, uh, and, so he's in there, you know, and, and it was Whitman reminding me of that. Of course, we all know this. We all know these things that, you know, the lost aren't lost, but we forget that sometimes. And we forget that if they're not here, we can, we can still feel them. Of course, we can still feel them. And, and, you know, where else we can find them? In books. And, and you know, just as Tom Berry and Violet Berry is with Molly whenever she reads the poems that her mum told her to read, read them because I'll be in them as well. Well, my old man's in the works of Cormac McCarthy. I just have to pick up the road and because we had a, we'd have four-day conversations about the road after we both read it, you know what I mean? And I can access immediately the things that he loved about it and remember him. And, you know, that's the cycle. So, so Whitman talks about a cycle of life and like actual physical nature, the cycle of nature and the universe. But, but my old man and I were just, we're connecting again in just the cycle of words, you know, how powerful is that? Like, that's so beautiful. Trent, I want to mention something, a book to you, if you don't already know. Yeah. I interviewed on this podcast some weeks ago, Tegan Bennett Daylight, about her beautiful book, The Details. 
I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm it's not. A, I'm not. But it sounds right up my alley. You know, I love the detail. It's nonfiction. It's all about reading and about writing. Oh wow! But one of the things that weaves it together is um, Tegan writes about her mother's death and how, which which happened a few years ago, but how she and her mother had this incredibly strong bond of reading together and connecting through books. And now that her mother has passed, her mother continues to live on in the books that Tegan reads that her mother oh. just sounds very similar to oh. what you were just oh, saying. Oh, that's, I've got to read it. I've got to read okay. it. That's amazing, Nicole. That's beautiful. I mean, but don't even get me started on details. Like it's like, that's the story of Boy Swallows Universe and the story of Slim Halliday, who was this great grand figure in my life in the 1980s, former mm-hmm. prisoner who, you know, that, he was all about the details and that idea that, you know, and so I've got to, you know, just the, the title alone is getting me. Like I truly believe life is in the, in the details and slowing down enough to see the details. And, you know, of course, you know, and it's like maybe you slow down long enough, you can actually see the people you've lost. Trent, something I have to ask you about, and it probably seems a little obvious, again, without wanting to give away too much of the plot, we've already heard that there's a sky that talks, there are gifts that fall from the sky, there's curses, there's spells, there's enchantment. <laughs> There's a lot of mysticism in yeah. this book. And I wonder to what extent you would um, describe it in, as a form of magical realism and the extent mm. to which you had been influenced by some of the South uh, American writers, such as Marquez, mm. um, who write in that genre of magical realism. Absolutely. And Marquez, yeah, Marquez, that it's so amazing and how often um, like South American readers who read the South American sort of copies of Boy Swallow's universe have been incredibly kind and sent the most beautiful messages sort of going like almost like you're like an adopted son of ours. And it's really sweet, Nicole. Like it's really cool to be even considered anywhere near the, the, the shoelaces of those Titans, you know, but, um, but it's true. And I can't deny it that I love that stuff. I live for that stuff, but here's, here's the thing about, what I am trying to get at in All Our Streaming Skies as far as magical re- realism, and, and, I, and I do, you know, I totally am, you know, just totally just diving into that world in this in a big way, but, but also I'm trying to also tap into that notion. And a really good man who does it is my, my wife's dad. He's an entomologist, right? And uh, he, he used to tell my wife and her sister when they were kids, when they'd go on a bushwalk, he'd just go, all right, we're stopping now. We're just, we're just going to sit on this section, okay? We're just going to sit for like half an hour and we're just going to be quiet and we're going to slow and we're going to look. And, and I, I love that notion, right? And it's something I try and encourage in my own daughters and take a tip from that great man. But, but also what he's doing is, right, and entomologists do it all the time. He would, he, I've seen him do it. Like he picks up an insect and he looks at the underside, he looks at the, the top side he looks at its eyes he he looks at every corner of that insect and you know it's no secret why um yukio miki essentially does that yukio miki is this fallen japanese fighter pilot but he doesn't know whether he's landed in the northern territory or whether he's landed in the high plains of heaven because the place is so darn beautiful and and it's with every intention of me if if you are on borrowed time and you thought australia was almost like heaven you know, there are parts of Australia where you could easily convince yourself it was, if, particularly if you're walking through a place like Litchfield National Park, which is one of my favourite places. But, but Yukio is looking at a stick insect and he picks it up and he looks at the top and he looks at the bottom and he sees that it's the colours of a rainbow or he looks at a rhinoceros or the structure of a rhinoceros beetle or the magical construction of a, um, of a spider's web or, 
or sticks his hand in a tree filled with honey. Like if you'd landed from Mars and had never, like if you saw, if you woke up today, right? If I woke up today as a 41 year old man with all my brain power and stuff and walked out the door, but knew nothing of earth, I'd think I'd be fairly convinced I'm, I'm walking into a dream, but uh, it's just commonplace now to us stepping out the door. But you know, I'd be blown away by my own backyard, you know? So I'm trying to sort of say there, the world is magical. The world is a magical place. You know, there's no doubt about it. You know, if you, if you came from Mars and saw a, and watched the transition of a caterpillar to a butterfly, you'd be fairly convinced that that is a work of magic. And, you know, so, um, you know, I, I think science is magic and, um, and I think life is magic and, and living is magic. So it's sort of, it's just that people call it, yeah, okay, now you're writing about it. So it's called magical magic realism. And it is I'm obviously, I'm, and I'm turning it up and I'm turning, I've turned the Northern territory into Oz, you know, and, uh, and, mm. but, but I wanted to, because I wanted to show the world. Yeah. I do believe this is a, just an, an incredible place that we can never take for granted, you know, and, uh, and hopefully it helps people see it in new eyes, you know, by doing it, by creating some sort of imaginary world that is Australia, but it kind of isn't. It's inspired by Australia, but I had to, I had to go magical and magic realism to, to tell people how the very real Australia is magical. Well, you certainly did that in describing <laughs> the, the journey through the wilderness. And I love, I yeah, read somewhere, right. and again, you've mentioned it today, it's something like the journey through Oz, that when they're in Darwin, they're in black and white. But yeah. once they start making their way through the wilderness on their quest, oh. it's when, when it's all in colour. And it gets more and more magical, absolutely, yeah. Trent, let's talk now about this idea of good and evil, which yeah, occurs... Yeah. It's such a strong, prevalent theme in both of those books. Um, in the first book, in Boy Swallows Universe, Eli, Eli, yep, is, Eli, trying, yep. Eli is trying so hard to work out what is it that makes a person, well, particularly oh, yeah. a man, what is it that yeah. makes a man good? And there's a lot of that sort of talk in this book as well. We've got a lot of Molly saying, that's a good one or that's a good Oh, yeah, there is, isn't there? Yeah, or yeah. that's wrong yeah. and that's right. And Molly's got a very strong sense of right and wrong. But I wanted to ask you about this. In both of these books, we see children who are completely innocent, who are completely good, mm. suffering at the hands of adults who are bad and who mm. are evil. And I wanted to ask you, why is that? Is that because they're cursed? Is there such a thing as curses? Are they just unlucky? Are they just victims of a malign fate? Would you talk a little bit about that? Mm. Yeah, like what, what, why am I going to that theme? Like what, what is it inside me that I keep going back to that? And I, I think because I, well, in truth, I think, Nicole, I'm still asking myself that question and I'm still having to check myself every day, I think, to in truth. And maybe, maybe that's not a bad thing. I don't think it's such a bad thing on a daily basis to just go, All right, how am I going? You know, how am I going as a human being? You know, have I, have I lost my way or have I met? I mean, far out, Nicole. One deeper reading is, am I a good dad? Am I, you know, how am I going as a dad to my own girls? You know, so, okay, well, let's go through it. Let's, let's take it from a perspective of a girl who has terrible guardianship, you know? And so, um, but why am I going back to those themes? And, and I do have no doubt it's because I mean, I was doing that as a, as a boy, you know, asking, looking for clues as to what constitutes a good man, like definitely, you know, because, this, this, this beautiful man I'm telling you about, Noel, who passed, you know, he had so many flaws and he'd be the first to tell you. Like he'd just go, no, my dad, my dad. dad. And, 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 and he was so one of these beautiful Aussie men who was so gracious that he would say, don't you dare follow in my footsteps. And I always think that's a, 
that's a lovely sort of selfless thing for a rogue kind of Aussie dad to say, you know, because I know there's so many dads who kind of weirdly encourage their kids down the, the same kind of dodgy path that they're on. And, you know, and I find that so egotistical and kind of so evil in some way. And I was always loved my dad so much for just going, I will kick your ass if you ever find yourself in this kind of world or that world that you have seen. And I know you've seen it. And so I thought that was so good. And so I thought, man, you are so good and you're so beautiful and you're so hard on yourself. And, uh, but yet I love you so much and the world doesn't see that. And so I'm kind of constantly asking myself those questions. If, if everyone said this about him, but yet I, I love that man, or, or even that guy who is this, this sort of drug dealer character in Boy Swallows Universe, who's from a real guy that my mum fell in love with when I was quite young, essentially the first kind of father figure that I ever knew. And I love that guy too, but he went away for like 10 years and he's a pretty, or he was a pretty dangerous dude. But everyone, and including the law, says all this stuff about him. And I'm not defending any of that. He's, you know, him doing that. I would never advocate any of that stuff. But I'm, what I'm saying is throughout all that, I still love the guy. And, I, and so does that mean I'm wrong? Am I wrong to love that guy? And if your, your models of love are so skewed, how do you know what goodness is? Or your models of goodness are so weird and strange and, and un, it's just not normal then how do you know when, when you are good yourself? You know what I mean? How am I ever going to know what good is? You know? And so I look at this father-in-law of mine, right? And my, my wife knows exactly what a good dad is because she's had a, just this cool guy for like, you know, a whole bunch of time. And so, and so did I, but it's sort of like, it was complex. And so, you know, and I think a lot of Aussie kids probably have that too. And so I'm just still asking all that stuff because I'm deeply fascinated by it. And, but it's also a very, I mean, it's the deepest thread we have and Shakespeare knew it, you know, good and bad. Am I going to turn? Am I going to be swayed to go the other way? And is there a better or more dramatic conflict than good versus evil? And, and you know, there, for me, there, there isn't it because it can come down to that. You know, do I be a dick or do I not? And kind of in our own 2020 versions of that, you know, and so, yeah, I'm still just jostling with all of that stuff and I love that in a narrative sense. But, yeah, look, I tried to run from Boy Swallows Universe and Am I a Good Man and not. And I ran as far away as I could, Nicole. And I ran all the way to Darwin and I went deep, deep, deep into the forests of, of the Northern Territory. And I found Eli Bell sitting at a rock pool and he was still looking back at me going, I still don't know the answer, Trent. Can you write another book? You know, and that's what happened, you know. You've said that the reason you wrote Boy Swallows Universe was because you needed, and you've mentioned that today, to process certain rocks that you were carrying around from your childhood in Brisbane in, in 1980s. But as exactly as you've just said, your initial plan with this book was to run a long way away from that to very different themes and ideas. Yeah. But somewhere along the way, you changed your mind and you've ended up exploring at least some of the same issues, how a child copes with trauma, how they find love and hope out of the darkness, the battle between good and evil. And you said that the reason that you'd returned to it was because I've got your words were, because I've got unfinished business. Oh, wow. So I was wondering, what was that unfinished business and do you think you've finished with it now with this book? Yeah. I. The interesting thing, yeah, and I even told people, I said, you know, it was so cathartic and it's true. Writing a book about that stuff is very cathartic. But just because you put all that stuff in a 400-page um, book 
and a few people read it and it's, you know, in, and people say really lovely stuff about it doesn't mean that that stuff that is a massive part of you ever leaves you, you know, and, um, and, and, but what I, what, what I realized and the conclusion I came to though, how sort of wrong would it be of me to kind of, or self-indulgent to kind of not do, not to not write from the place in my own heart and soul where I would feel I was most powerful. Like, like there was, there were moments, Nicole, where I'm so proud of the actions of my brothers and I that we acted with true grace and poetry, you know, and I'm, I'm saying when we were in our teens where crazy stuff is going on in a, in a house anywhere in Brisbane and there's violence and blood and, and it's four boys walking a midnight street in the suburbs of Brisbane and I'm terrified and I'm crying because I'm the youngest brother and I'm a bit lost but these beautiful older brothers of mine, Nicola, are, um, they're, they're, they're telling me jokes and they're, they're making me laugh because they love me so much. And, you know, I, I just can't not write about that well of emotion. And, and I cannot, like, right there cuts to the heart of what, what I want to write about. You know, that, that's all I'm here to do. I think, I'm, I think I was given whatever. I'm not good at anything else, Nicole, literally. Like, I cannot change grease and oil change a car i cannot carve a spear i cannot i cannot do anything of any mechanical skill whatsoever other than join two sentences together and and i think i was given that one blessing from the universe because i needed it to get through whatever happened in the 1980s and 1990s and don't get me wrong it wasn't like the worst thing in the world or anything but it was just whatever it was has given, and I feel like, man, I'm going to use that and use all that emotion because that's what I've been put on this earth to do, to dive into that emotion and that love I have for those people in my life and go, Hey, this is what that feels like. And I hope you can feel it too. And, and I think I'll be exploring those things and, and picking up those rocks of mine still, you know, for the rest of my life. Trent, thank you. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. I wish you all the very best with your wonderful, wonderful second book. I think I read somewhere as at today, that you're number one. Yeah, number it's one true. It's true. It, make, it makes me a bit, Congratulations. again, it's just more weirdness for me as far as, you know, but uh, I'm really proud. Yeah. Thanks, Nicole. And it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and, but that's only the product of everyone who read Boyce Waller's Universe. So I'm, I just love every last person who picked that book up and then went, Hey, I'll, I'll give this kid another crack, you know, and I'm so honored by that. I'm so honored by that. And I can't wait for them to kind of, they, they really cared for Eli Bell and I just can't wait for them to kind of go meet Molly Hook. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.